Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am uh, not with Alex today. I actually have Kate on board with me, which is really exciting. Kate, hit us off. Who have we got on today? So we're joined today by Joshua Green, who is a history and sociology PhD graduate from the University of Southampton. He's now working with a new publisher in the video gaming industry, as well as working towards his first book. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. So, Kate, I mean, this is this has kind of inspired you a little bit, this podcast. That's why you're on board with me today. Am I right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think and I think we need to talk more about mental health. You know, even now, as far as we've come, it's still a really big issue. No, I totally agree. Um, I don't know what you think about this, Joshua, but um, coming from a male perspective, as you can correct me here, but, you know, women tend to talk more openly about mental health and, and how it's proceeded through through the years. But men, I'm assuming men just don't want to talk about it. And it's something that we kind of need to break that barrier a little bit. 100%. It's still, considering how far we've come, it's still been it's still such an issue that men especially won't talk about mental health at all and it kind of leads to this bottling up and these issues and that's why you see things like the suicide rates in men being so high and I'd encourage anyone who's listening who is, feels like they have any kind of problem to talk about it with someone that you trust. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, uh, it, it's also high amongst uh, former veterans. I mean, we will be having yeah. um, a uh, a major. Will he, will he still be a former major? I can't remember. He's retiring at the moment. And um, Major Fox, he's, he's quite a big advocate for this kind of sort of thing. And I'm very pro working with, um, with uh, military veterans. So if anyone is out there and you are a military veteran and you do need help, please reach out. We also have some absolutely amazing programs out there like uh, Operation Florence Nightingale, um, the uh, British, um, God, no, uh, my mind's going blank to the name of the the, the organisation now. Um, Groundbreaking Heritage, that's the one I was looking for. Uh, get in contact with those guys. They're absolutely amazing former veterans um, and get, get, get some help. It's really important. Anyway, Enough of me babbling, enough of Kate babbling. Let's get Joshua talking because um, nobody wants to be listening to me for 45 minutes. So we're going to be talking literally about mental health, but we are going to start off with the first question, which is the word bedlam. It is used to describe a disorder and confusion. But tell us, Joshua, where does that word originate? So bedlam is like was like the colloquial name for the first psychiatric asylum that was set up in England, which was Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which was founded about the 13th century in the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, which, as the time, I think 
there's quite a nice quote that says that spelling's generally optional in this period of time. So you had variant spellings of it being Bethlehem and Bedlam. And that's kind of where that phrase came from, as people would use that to refer to the hospital. And then over time, that melded to refer to more um, psychological um, issues as well. And it, you can see this quite a lot with language when it comes to asylums, of the language of the asylums being used in general conversation just to refer to mental health in general. And I think it's quite a nice point to say that that when talking about these areas and these times, there's quite a lot of language that I'll use as we go through, as it was the language that was used then that we wouldn't necessarily use now. So it's, it's not that I'm using that in a depreciating way or anything. It's just that's what at the time it would have been referred to. So if that comes out don't, during... Don't worry about it. We've had yeah. podcasts where we've done that and we, we do highlight and say, look, yeah. however much we're going to be using uh, words that today we don't deem appropriate, uh, they were used at the time. Uh, yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, please don't be offended by uh, by what we're going to be doing. So go for it, Joshua. Excellent. Yeah. So you definitely have um, that setup where, because it's Bethlehem Royal Hospital, the word becomes this general colloquialism for insane and for mad. And this isn't something that is isolated to history either. I've had I've worked looking at some sites that were set up as late as 1930, where the name of those asylums is still used in the same way in that community. So where it's not as widely spread, it's more like the local version. So you have, for example, uh, in Swansea, it's um, Kevin Coyd Hospital now. And there are instances that I've seen when speaking to people around the area who said that it is quite common to use phrases such as, oh, they'll be going to the Coyd, etc. In a similar way that you use the Bedlam, Bedlam is now used in that colloquial manner. So, so there's a lot of kind of the history of asylums that's, that's really survived then. Yeah, definitely. There's it, they, the ones that are, there are still some that are actually open and in use. And there's, it's just quite difficult to keep track of them because there's no kind of central way. But there's probably around eight, seven or eight left, which are still used for mental health care purposes, be that in the old original buildings or in new facilities on the same sites. That's incredible. I mean, I know there's there's a couple in Hackney. Um, I think one of the hospitals was still, if I'm not mistaken, uh, still open, and they revamped it, and then they revamped it, then they closed it, then they opened it. It's 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 you are right. It's really difficult to know: is this place open? Is it not? Are they building a new one? What is happening? Yeah, you end up having to look for things like planning records and even. Um, going back through historical uh, maps and things to see where things were built up and where they were taken away and how those spaces developed over the time. Because it can be quite difficult, with, like, especially with um, a lot of records not surviving to the modern times as well. So they did change during, kind of during the course then of the, their lifetime. They changed even while they were in operation. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I basically would happen was when the asylums were first set up there was this misunderstanding of how mental health worked so the idea was that they would build these hospitals in these areas they would have for example 400 beds in this hospital and the idea was that they would get the 400 patients in they they would come in they'd be cured and then they'd move on ready for the next set of patients etc 
but what they found very, very fast is that they'd set up with 400 beds, they'd get 400 patients, and there was a significant number who wouldn't leave, basically. you get like long-term patients. And that was not what they expected to happen, but it's what was always going to happen. And what they ended up doing is having to add like extensions and extra buildings. And then when it got to the point where they couldn't kind of cope much longer, I think you've got an example of the West Riding Asylum set up and had these issues. And one of their solutions was to basically open a new asylum in South Riding. So that's where you got the, um, you went from the Wakefield Asylum basically to the Sheffield Asylum open. Was that set up in addition then, or was it set up instead of? In addition, to be, provide more beds so that the, so that the um, patients from the South Yorkshire area, for example, could then be treated in the local area, which took pressure off the West Yorkshire Asylum. Okay. Right, so let's start talking a little bit about the early understanding of mental illness and the conditions that were diagnosed and how people in the first asylums were treated. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, at the very, very early days, like when you've got uh, Bethlehem, when it starts becoming more of a mental hospital in the 14th century, the records of patients being admitted are just as um, mente capti, which is just literally just means insane. So there's no kind of specific... Um, categorization in there. It's just this person is insane, they're coming into Bethlehem. And treatment early on, if it's the right word, was kind of things like manacles and solitary confinement, very much like you'd see in prisons and jails. But realistically, at this time, we don't know like a lot about the treatment that was going on. But when you get towards like the 17th century, maybe early 18th, that's when you start to get the records of things like hydrotherapy which were just cold at the time were just cold baths like ice cold baths and there were, you had um records showing people being basically strapped down and then placed into the bath so they couldn't move and couldn't get out uh and then you also get references to patients being bled um patients procedures such as like scarification and then later on leeches um the whole four humors thing of um like bloodletting and enforced vomiting and defecation and things like that just to kind of get the balance of the body right etc and when you get towards like the late 18th century you start getting those accusations that these treatments were unnecessarily violent so I think but then that was kind of like a very public argument between the family running Bethlehem at the time and then the people running I, might, I think it was St. Luke's, which is another asylum kind of just across London. And they had this like really public feud about the, the treatment in Bethlehem and how it was kind of entrenched in its archaic systems and therefore continuing with things that were felt to be outdated still, at, even at that time. So what, what were they trying to achieve with some of these treatments? I mean, what was the idea? What were they what did they think was causing this insanity that they just lumped into to one diagnosis? And, you know, what, what were they hoping to achieve by nearly drowning people or bleeding people and, and this sort of thing? Um, there was this misunderstanding of knowing what mental health was. So there were, there's a long history of um, these mental health 
conditions being diagnosed as being like physical problems. So like the idea of four humours going back to like hypocrisy, uh, yeah, Hippocrates and Galen and this kind of thing of the of having like black bile, yellow bile, blood, and oh, what was the fourth one? Flem. 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 Thank you very much. <laughs> I've never been so excited by phlegm. And oh. <laughs> so you've got these four like basically humours or whatever you want to call them that they felt got out of balance within the body and therefore they were trying to kind of put them into balance and they thought that this would therefore solve the problems that patients were having. And things like um, the cold baths and things, they have kind of, it was kind of like a very, it's a similar, I think it's, I guess it's a similar kind of logic to things like, um, uh, ECT and things, just like that sharp reset kind of idea. Of... Yeah, like a shock almost. That I mean, the poor person nearly being drowned, you'd be absolutely exhausted, or having however many pints of blood drained, you'd be exhausted. I mean, so you would, I guess, naturally be quieter after a treatment like that. Yeah, definitely. And then things like restraints and things. If you if you manacle or tie someone up for long enough, they're just going to give up. So mm. I guess there's kind of a perverse. Uh, illusion of success in there, in a way. Yeah. They're breaking. It, it, sorry, Kat, I just wanted to jump sorry. down in. They're they're bre- they're literally mentally breaking these people down. Is the bottom line? Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, what, sort of what I was going to ask. Yeah, is there like a moral kind of um, religious thing because they are breaking their spirit, aren't they? That is an excellent point that I'd not thought about before. <laughs> yeah, but yes, potentially, yeah. So initially, the purpose of the asylums was kind of more to segregate sufferers from society, if I'm correct, right? Mm. But around the turn of the 19th century, there was a move to reform mental health care, wasn't there? So who were the main people involved? Um, And what did they do? What actions did they take to try and instigate this change? Yeah, so when you get to the beginning of the uh, 19th century, you've got like the asylum acts starting to be brought in so you've got uh, new county asylums which are being set up by um, asylum boards and these are kind of more of a structured institution for people to go into and when as we spoke about right at the start these were kind of these got built but because of the planning and because of the misunderstanding they were very quickly overcrowded and stuff so what you got was a mo- like almost like a counter movement which was in Europe it had been Pinnell but in the UK it had been like William Tuke who were kind of pioneers of treatment in this time so what happened with William Tuke is he went into the York Asylum and saw the overcrowding and the treatment that was happening in there and then um, he saw the death of a well I didn't see a death but there was a death of a young Quaker girl called Hannah Mills in about 1790 that he witnessed and what happened from there is he was a Quaker himself and what happened there is basically he decided this isn't right this isn't good this can be done in a much better way so two years later like after consultation and after gathering funds through the Quaker community and things like that he sets up the York retreat and what the York retreat does is it looks to kind of incorporate all of the kind of Quaker ideology around equality and patients being treated like human beings to be given equal respect to everyone else. And what can we, what must be said is that Duke didn't 
he wasn't a doctor. He didn't know much about like healthcare in general. But what he did implement was this kind of practice of like a social treatment for mental health rather than physical. So it was kind of like one of those big steps in like mental health history. So he starts looking at things like just simple things like negative behavior would be punished but the the idea was that there wasn't they they weren't manacling like patients as a standard practice only in extreme cases so you've got restraint being used much less but then also if there was positive behavior patients would also be rewarded so it's kind of like that kind of moral balance of guiding people towards the right decision almost that you see in teaching like and then what was also set out was things like routines so patients would have chores they'd have leisure time they'd have a routine to get themselves into so they weren't just kind of languishing bored stuck in their own head they'd have a routine to follow which are a lot of the things that we that um we still use now when we start thinking about these kind of things and what was also quite i wouldn't say it, it, I wouldn't say it was invented for this, but it was because of their position and because they weren't in this overcrowded state, they could diligently classify and separate patients both by sex and by the severity of illness, which is something that the county asylums were struggling to do considering how many patients they had. And it was more of a get them in where they can go kind of situation. And I think quite a nice quote to round off is from William Tuke's grandson Samuel because he said the lines of there is however one remedy which is frequently employed at the retreat and which appears to have been attended with the happiest effects and that is the warm bath so you're moving away from that cold the cold submersion and forced to a nice warm bath to be calming and therapeutic and it's everyone loves the warm bath yeah it's so much nicer as a kind of an outlook (laughs) (laughs) I'm really curious at this point we're talking about state-funded asylums were there any private ones that had uh, overall better conditions where I don't know you could pay a lot of money for for the rich people and you would have a much better quality of care yes there were Um, the retreat was was a private asylum when it was set up and that's one of the reasons why it was much easier. And the difference between the public and the private was so distinct because, like you said, in the same way that now you've almost got like the NHS is understaffed, underfunded, et cetera, et cetera. It was, the same, it was kind of the same at the time in that there were so many patients that were struggling to cope. A private asylum could set up with their own money and admit as few or as many patients as they wanted that they had in the space and had a lot more control because they didn't have a responsibility in a way they had a more of a free reign to do what they wished so yeah there's definitely a distinction in the care that was provided between the both so there would have been a distinction between poor uh, what were known as pauper patients and then private private ones and in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. 
one thing that you do see though is that the private asylums were more prone to manipulation of um, patients being admitted. So you do see examples of or allusions to patients being admitted to basically because they're maybe because they're in a line of succession and they want them out of the way or they're being mouthy or they're being difficult and families just want them out of the way because uh, you mm-hmm. could just pay put them in gone problem solved kind so, of. so speaking of that then that kind of leads quite nicely onto our next point yeah. um doesn't it insofar as um with the ter- in terms of discrimination i mean records show yeah. that there were a lot more women than men in asylums don't they um why was this and and were they treated differently in what ways because i'm sure they were treated differently in what ways were they treated differently from the men how was that how did you see that discrimination yeah so there's a lot there's a few factors that this could come down to so one is a like we said for the general misunderstanding of mental health but also a general misunderstanding of women's health as well and this can be demonstrated by looking at some of the official reasons for admittance on the records and there's a one in particular popular image that's gone around the internet that is quite fascinating yeah we, i've seen that <laughs> image <laughs> yeah and i'm just going to read out a couple that are from there and a couple of other places just to show how how ridiculous some of them were as they were written down so we have things like imaginary female trouble fits and <laughs> fits and desertion of husband suppression <laughs> suppression of menses women trouble female disease w- w- hold on women trouble no, what I is, I'm, I'm the, really curious what say, <laughs> the records as they were written there was, it wasn't they weren't always um they weren't always very kind of i'd say medical or very um professional you do see cases where it just says something along the lines of horse and the assumption would be that someone got kicked in the head by a horse or something or someone being kicked by a horse but the form would just say horse and so i will say is that this is just like things that doctors have written in so you get i think the other couple that i've got on there are gynecological gynecological disorder hysteria which is quite a common one and menstrual deranged which is probably the weirdest phrase I've seen written on a medical form. Um, something else that comes out of this, and you can kind of see, it's kind of alluded to in the list that's there, is that women are kind of were seen as the fairer sex and described as being weak and unable to cope and all that kind of rubbish. So, yeah, everyday kind of 19th, 20th century sexism comes into that as well. And when looking through archives, the other big one that's i found quite shocking when i first like started reading about it was that you can get um women who were committed for asylums for the grievous crime of having a child out of wedlock and so they would basically the baby would be taken away they'd be put in and i remember distinctly i really wish i could remember her name but i remember distinctly finding the records of this the 19 20 year old woman i think she might have been called alice when kind of she was admitted to the asylum for having a child out of wedlock but was still there like 50 years later 
So I was talking to a, a nurse, I actually work at a, yeah. a health clinic, and I was talking to a nurse um, only yesterday, and she mentioned that when she was doing her training, she'd done a short period mm. at, on a psychiatric ward, and there was a lady, a very elderly lady who lived there, yeah. who'd been born in the very late 1800s, who'd been born out of wedlock and had been in this mental yeah. hospital since she was born. Yeah, exactly. Was that the, common then? That, what, it, I wouldn't say it was common, it was not uncommon. For it to happen, okay. I found records of uh, women who have spent almost their entire lives in these asylums, and it's the fact that when it came to it, and I'm sure when your friend was there as well, when these people have been there for 50, 60 years, you kind of have this thing where they're in there for something which is now not frowned upon at all, but they're still there. And part of this is kind of uh, people being institutionalised and not really knowing how to how to be out not they've always been there so they've kind of this problem when they come out and things treatment when it comes down to things like treatment the biggest example that i can find is um things like ect like electroconvulsive therapy because women were like two to well were and are two to three times more likely to be um treated with ect than men so approximately about 70 ish percent of all ect patients are women and this could be linked to the fact that women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression but then again that diagnosis itself is probably gendered as well so it's kind of this kind of vicious circle almost of a misunderstanding that we still have so basically diagnosed by yes, men yes basically can can you imagine um if there was a female like a female doctor at the time writing things like menstrual deranged <laughs> she just wouldn't would she <laughs> i can't imagine it I just I looked at that list and I'm sitting there thinking what are some of this some of this stuff really just doesn't make sense like why would you go in there for I don't know for okay for, so for example you're annoyed with your husband he's been cheating you slap him in the face oh well she's she's having a deranged menstrual whatever it is and I'm like you could go into an asylum for the stupidest things just because your husband would would say oh well she's crazy let's lock her they up they didn't question it did they they just took him as well. Didn't no. There's exactly. A, there was a there's a historian called Nancy Tomes who suggests that around that time, doctors would lean towards confirming diagnoses made by family members, some rather than diagnosing themselves. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how they, it seems to ring true in some of these because, like you said, it, they definitely sound like things that someone's just gone. Oh, she hit me. It's a it, she's menstrual deranged. Lock her up, kind of thing, rather than a doc doctor actually, you know, diagnosing and <laughs> having it from like a medical standpoint. So women, again, women yep. <laughs> underline this. Women are often often uh, wrongly con <laughs> wrongly committed. Um, was Alice Christina Abbott one example of this? Yes, she was. So there were both known and suspected cases of women being wrongly committed to asylums for a number of reasons, but they come down to a couple of uh, overarching themes: the misunderstanding of health that we've talked about before, a level of mismanagement which you can see in, like, um, I don't know if you know about Nellie Bly, who was the American investigative reporter, went into the went into an asylum kind of undercover to report on the conditions. And one of the things that she found was that um, there were actually kind of a number of female immigrants in those asylums who had just been put there for sport, poor spoken English, were probably supposed to have gone to a workhouse, but obviously the language barrier meant they were there. And then most interestingly, as we're kind of going to be talk been talking about now, there's kind of that 
idea of control and of reputational control, especially. So women placed in asylums for the heinous crimes of things like arguing with their husbands or a lack of modesty or a difference of religious belief. And also some evidence, like like I mentioned before, of social and economic benefits to family members of people being admitted. Alice Christina Abbott is one of the admissions. She was an American girl in about 1867, and she killed her stepfather, right? And allegedly by poisoning his tea. And she claimed that to have done so because he had been having an improper connection with her since she was 13, right? And when so she just got... to clarify, improper connection, basically he was sexually abusing her. Yes. I mean, not beating about the bush, he was... Yeah, but yeah, yeah, basically, yes, from when she was 13 years old through to 17. And unsurprisingly, she showed no remorse for his death when they were in the trial, as I don't think many people would. Wouldn't but... you be... I'm not surprised. I no. am not surprised. The fact that she was the one on trial is annoying in the first place, but then the accusations that she was making and like the idea, like the defense that she was putting forward, she got completely dismissed. Right. And just sent into an asylum as being mad. And that's the last record that we have of her life, of her being sent. We don't, we don't even know as far as I'm aware of records of her being there, but this kind of, I, I fully believe that this is one example of kind of, reputational control and trying to mitigate scandal in what could be a small community in what could be a large family in a small community etc and it's just one of those cases which is just infuriating in that you can kind of see how just dismissive people were and how how asylums were kind of like the almost like a catch not a catch-all, but a, oh, we we don't want to deal with this. You can go over there, kind of thing. You're yeah, almost not... like a almost like a dumping ground. Or, or yeah, exactly. You're not a problem, you're not a problem anymore. You're now away. Yeah. You're now. <laughs> yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. So, so asylums and and kind of the study of mental health then were used as a means really of, of controlling women and oppressing them, weren't they? Is that what happened to Elizabeth Packard? Yeah, I, this is, it's a fan, it's, it's kind of like almost a fantastic story whilst also being absolutely horrific. So Elizabeth Ware Packard, an American teacher uh, in America, married to a Calvinist minister who, by the name of Theophilius Packard, which is a villain's name if you ever heard one. And... <laughs> The couple have six children and 
she's like I said, she's a school teacher, and she starts to um, express religious differences with her husband. And I believe he was quite much older than she was, so I don't know whether there was some kind of I don't know whether there was some kind of almost like arranged marriage situation there. But she starts to express her own opinions, which is obviously at the time a massive problem. And they disagreed and they argued on things such as religion and slavery at the time. And what happened was, well, what could happen was basically at the time a husband could have his wife committed to his asylum, just on their own choice so without a hearing without her, her consent and therefore she was like sent to the Jacksonville Insane Asylum in 1860 she stayed there for about three years uh, before her her children basically made had a made a fuss and she was discharged as but not as sane but she was discharged as incurable and back into the care of her husband and what he did was basically he nailed shut the windows on the nursery and he just locked her in the nursery of their home and she wasn't allowed to leave because it would have been embarrassing and he didn't want to deal with it. Things, All, all those horrible things. Uh, what she managed to do from her nursery is pass a note out the window to, to a friend and her friend took this note to like kind of local um, judiciary law enforcement and she managed to secure a trial. And at this trial... Basically, what happened is Theophilus, being like the Calvinist minister and being this big person in the community, got his family and his congregation to all trot up and basically say, oh, yeah, she's insane. Yep, she's definitely insane. And then you got the cases of the people who weren't in his, for want of a better word, flock, to who were saying, no, we've never seen anything issue. There's no problem. And what it kind of came down to was there was a final testament given by a doctor called... Um, uh, Dr. Duncanson, who basically, a quote from him was basically, I did not agree with her on many things, but I do not call people insane because they differ with me. You might as much propriety call Christ insane or Luther or Robert Fuller. I pronounce her a sane woman and wish we had a nation of such women. And she was, um, as a result, she was cleared of insanity and allowed to leave. Now, on her return to her home, which was the home that she was a prisoner in, the home that she had with her husband, she found out it had been rented to another family the day before she was released. And all her belongings had been sold and her husband had left the state with the children. And she went to the court, she appealed to the courts, but at the time, married women in America had no claim to either their belongings or their children or anything along those lines. So she didn't really have a official recourse to go down. And at this point is where she she then kind of builds herself up. She builds the builds. She sets up the anti-insane asylum society in America, and commits herself to campaigning for kind of women's rights. And uh, in in her uh, in her campaigning, she managed to get multiple states to pass laws and change the law to make sure that people being admitted, including married women, are then have a right to a trial before they go and have a right to be. Uh, defend themselves before they're just admitted so it's one of those stories that she makes such a difference when it comes to the end but the fact that she had to go through what she did to get there is incredible in a not in the good sense but in the it's almost not credible sense <laughs> yeah yeah, it's, it is incredible, absolutely. Um, and and we know about her, but I'm sure there must be loads of other similar. Yeah, because 
you think that you see cases like uh, Alice Abbott and you see cases like um, Elizabeth Ware Packard, and then you think, how many people didn't we see? How many people weren't, didn't receive um, a trial, yeah. didn't get the chance? And... Just got stuffed in there and forgotten about. Yeah, exactly. So by by the Victorian era, asylums had sort of to some extent fallen sort of foul of their own success, no, and and were operating more as correctional institutions on a lot of occasions, sort of incarcerating inmates rather than sort of treating sufferers. So what effect did this success have on the institutions and those living and working in them? Uh, I'm not certain about the falling foul of their own success. But like we said before, the fundamental flaw in the asylums was this idea that of um, a certain amount of cu- curing and people being dismissed and stuff. So the problem they had is that they weren't, weren't prepared for those long-term patients, which led to a steady rise in patient numbers, which then meant that there was insufficient space, insufficient staff, and they were struggling to basically successfully manage the growing patient population. And what okay. happened was that wards kind of became these repositories of beds where the beds would be like an inch apart on each side and um, you'd end up with like so many patients in a single room that would have to kind of like crawl around and uh, to get to their beds and things and um, conditions were frankly horrific and you kind of got this uh, massive pressure that comes on the staff because there's not very many of them there's a lot of patients and then things like the manacles, well, not manacles, but things like the physical restraints and things start to become much more widely used again and much mm. used much more often just as a way of managing with that pressure and that overwhelming number of patients in the asylum, and um, which is where things start to go backwards. And that's where this kind of carceral um, environment comes from. Because there's just nothing, no, there's nowhere to put the patients. There's no, um, in the space that they've got, they can't really, they've kind of, this whole idea of the asylum being, well, what it was intended to be, where the word asylum comes from, this like retreat, the retreat, the separation, the calm, the almost like the oasis is destroyed in a way because there's too many, they they don't have this quiet, um, spacious uh, grounds and, airiness that was, they were supposed to be um, treated with and being relaxed it goes right back to Tuke, that idea. And instead, they've just got probably what's more chaotic than the life they came from. And they've got so many people there and so many people in such a small space that it becomes almost animalistic. And this kind of, the institutions as a whole, therefore, kind of was, just ended up being an alternative prison almost. Mm. And just I mean, kind if you, of, hadn't, if yeah. you hadn't got mental health problems, you know, and you were put in, as we've discussed, some people were, you'd mm. certainly have mental health problems after you'd been in there, wouldn't you? Quite possibly, yeah. And the other thing, though, is if there's so many patients, then the time that anyone gets with each individual patient goes down. And like, so there's much less of a an overview of each individual patient. So even if um, a patient shouldn't be there, the likelihood of it being noticed mm. is very low they were basically forgotten they were forgot people forgot that they were there they didn't receive the treatment that they were supposed to and just kind of left to their own devices at the end of the day i suppose yeah definitely yeah okay so let's move forward a little bit 
uh, to the second half of the 20th century because that move uh, sees the total closure of uh, some psychiatric facilities. But closing asylum doesn't stop people having mental illnesses. Obviously, they're still ongoing. What did the closures mean for these patients? Um, Well, I think the issue with the closure was that um, it was around... Uh, it was 1961 Enoch Powell did his big speech which is known as the water tower speech where he basically says psychiatric asylums are a relic of an old system they're not fit for purpose we shouldn't be using them we should close them all right now and have done with it and basically he basically then went on to announce that he was going to cut like 50% of all inpatient asylum beds beds in asylums and there was no more money available for any um, maintenance or refurbishment of the old asylums because they didn't want to waste any money on them. And what basically happened there is in this kind of ideological haste to close those asylums, it was often kind of done before they had a comprehensive plan and system worked out for when they had closed. So the patients that had been residing in the asylum, some of which had been there for decades and some of which were very much institutionalised, were then discharged into community care. And this, in some instances, has been described as, I think it's Walsh and Deer, um, Landscapes of Despair, which is like a misassignment or a, I struggle with this word, trans-institutionalisation into inappropriate institutions. So where these patients are then discharged from the mental hospitals, they either end up in like prisons, jails, general hospital wards, other institutional settings that are less specialised and less appropriate for them. And there's a full acknowledgement that the asylums weren't perfect and in some cases weren't working. And But this wasn't an improvement for those patients. Like those patients that were kind of long-term patients needed that care, didn't have that option anymore. So whereas for minor patients, like minor patients, for patients with less uh, severe problems, this may have been a positive because then instead of being, they could be like live their normal lives, but just have contact. Those who needed that care and who were discharged had a much worse time of it. I guess it would have had a really, really big effect on the people who we spoke about earlier. We said the, the people who were institutionalised, people who'd yeah. been in a psychiatric hospital yeah. for 30, 40 years. Yeah, definitely. And the other issue that you start to see is... In these, uh, like obviously, these uh, set were set up when they're kind of, they're kind of separate, separated from uh, communities, uh, from like people and things. As time goes on, urban sprawl and all that, all these asylums start to be like in the middle of communities. But they would always been there, so people weren't like people would use these language like we talked talked talk about at the beginning about them, but they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't be like campaigning for them to not be there. <clears throat> no. What happens when the asylums start to close is you start to need community provision and you start to need um like um i can't remember the word for it now but if you've got care in the community you basically need those day houses the day centers for those patients to go in the community and what starts to happen is that the communities turn around and say <laughs> for for want of a better phrase not in not in my backyard like the nimby stuff mm-hmm. So like, yeah, they were really well, yeah, shunned, weren't they? The people yeah. were really, really shunned and outcast. Yeah, so that it was kind of like, well, yeah, we recognise that, that there needs to be services, but we don't want them here. We want them somewhere else, kind of 
idea and it's a big whole issue around that as well which kind of leans into this whole stigma that was attached to the patients and things like that as well yeah the, they changed the names didn't they um during the, the 20th century <laughs> rephrased yeah. everything yes yeah, some asylums had their names ref- uh, been their names changed mul- on multiple occasions so if you look through looking for records of asylums sometimes it can be quite difficult to follow the track because they could have like 10 names over their lifetime just as this change gradually changed in the um when the nhs took control in the 1948 yeah, yeah 1948 um all these asylums kind of come under their umbrella so then you see not an instant, but kind of a gradual change where psychiatric um, asylums become hospitals and inmates become patients and along those things along those lines. So you see the, the wording change. But the problem, and you can you kind of get, because they're all under the same umbrella, you see kind of almost like the, the possibility of a national strategy and kind of this national uh, approach. But they have exactly the same issues as they had before. So yeah. they're still they're still understaffed they're still underfunded. they're still oversubscribed and therefore the same issues are still there that there were before so although there was some change and there would have been some benefits to that change a lot of the core issues aren't resolved by that process yeah, by I that mean, move changing the name of a place or, or changing the terminology used to describe people in the place isn't going to isn't going to massively change the uh the treatment or the conditions is it um no i think the main thing that it does what i will say is it changes the it almost changes the narrative in a little way so it, the it's public one, perception yes it's one of those steps towards um more acceptance by stop stopping using these kind of archaic terms that we used before start kind of bringing it under the health banner rather than under a separate banner yeah. so people start to think of it as oh it's a health problem in to an extent not fully because like we've discussed at the start we're still not there yet no um, um yeah my dad actually trained as an rmn at one of these such places that we're talking about um burntwood asylum though by the time he was there it was known as matthew's hospital yeah. um typical case and it was closed in 1995 as part of the government's uh, care in the community program and it was redeveloped for residential use um i understand most of the buildings were demolished only the admin block chapel and social club uh, remained although we were looking at we were looking at it on google maps the other day and um the building that they're calling the admin building we weren't sure if it was all admin or if it was mm. part ward and they'd re kind of described it shall we say yeah. there's this sort of redevelopment for residential use common and how does the history and the redevelopment how do they affect each other how does one one dictate the, the other yeah there are quite a number of ways in which asylums are redeveloped the most common of which is for uh, housing and residential purposes and the biggest challenge that they face when they're redeveloping these sites is kind of how to manage the history associated with those sites. And um, when that use is commercial or when it's like going to be a commercial issue, so like if they're going to build houses, they need, then need to sell and things along those lines. They need to kind of, that's when marketers come in, right? And the marketing people come in and say, well, this uh, old 
psychiatric asylum it's tainted we don't really want to discuss this in this way so then this what they start to do is uh, kind of manipulate the language it's used and kind of manipulate the history of those sites and it's quite an interesting in the way that the language is used there's one which is um <clears throat> the former free and barnet asylum or the free and barnet hospital which is now known as princess park manor right and it's quite a it's quite a luxurious development let's say and it's one of those that's in it's in London. It's been home to things like Arsenal footballers, members of people like JLS and One Direction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, yeah, so you get the idea of it being quite a exclusive place. And their marketing text on their website says. Um, Princess Park Manor is an award-winning period-listed building set in 30 acres of private parkland. The development has been sensitively and imaginatively converted to combine elegance and exquisite proportion of its heritage with the convenience and comfort expected in the modern age. Now, I use this quote a lot, right? Way too much. But it's a perfect example of how language is used to promote the modern kind of luxury housing. And it's very similar to the language that was used for the original asylum. So I was just thinking yeah. that it's almost going back to its original yeah. like intention. Yes, going back to those original ideas of separation and quiet and elegance of the buildings and privateness. And it's kind of come full circle. So they're now pushing that in the narrative for these residential flats. But they completely kind of gloss over the actual use of the building so they, yeah, they just almost dismiss it out don't they yeah so it's kind of like you can almost see the gap where it should be said but it's not there so they mm. kind of end up with this whole thing where they're trying to distinguish the new and the old but they're trying to use the positive parts that they see of the old buildings this whole grand aesthetic and this whole mm. Um, all, all that whilst trying to ignore the actual asylums themselves and you see this in quite a few locate like quite a few locations and yeah. um <clears throat> it's almost this whole idea of selective remembrance and strategic forgetting so this mm. whole idea of the memory of these sites are going to be kind of detoxified and all the nasty bits are going to be taken out and the history is going to be molded into this kind of commodity that we can sell yeah right <clears throat> and <clears throat> sorry just to go on a slight tangent to that like housing is the most common of these like fates that you get for these asylums and the most common way in which they're redone for various reasons but you do get other like more bizarre in a way um developments for them because the space is quite a easy one to use because they had like separated rooms and then large wards they're quite easy to segment and to turn into different things so the other ones you can get are things like student housing so you get quite a few um, instances of um, asylums being redeveloped for university purposes either for offices or for accommodation which to be honest explains a lot and you get one or two which could be prisons which again makes sense with the layout but I believe there was one in um, Surrey which the old chapel and a couple of buildings are being used as a Buddhist monastery, for example. So there's a very wow. wide variety of all these different uses that some of them are still used for. Whereas then you get a significant amount then that were also demolished. So you mm. kind of have this half and half um, situation, but even where they're demolished, there are sometimes like 
indicators that the asylum is, was there. So they'll like the roads in the new housing estates and stuff will be named after the, what the old wards were named and things. But like mm. those kind of things where if you didn't know, you wouldn't notice it. But yeah, if you, the, if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't see it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's great that some are redeveloped, so we do save the architecture. But yeah. there's so much more that it's so much more important that we are losing, that we are forgetting. Yeah, what's the? I think the issue that you find is that there's very little um, in the in the way of like sites of remembrance. So although mm. the buildings remain, the sites don't tend to have any kind of indication of the previous use so there's no like memorial there's no plaque there's no like anything to do with what the history was so i think the limit uh, there's a very limited amount uh, there was a study done of the redevelopment in the early 2000s i think it was chaplin and peters they looked yeah. at 30 34 of these sites and what they found is there was like a there was like one plaque one uh, memorial garden and then um, a display of photos in the Imperial War Museum, and that was like it. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, we've heard asylums, with rare exception, were pretty horrific places, and it was common for Victorians to visit them, like they were sort of a sideshow, a, a sort of macabre zoo, right? Um, can this be likened in any way to the popularity of shows like American Horror Story or films like Shutter Island? And why do we continue? Because as we've said, often it's glossed over, but... Um, often it's also kind of distorted into like a grotesque sort of caricature of reality that's used for entertainment yeah definitely i love this question by the way yeah there's almost an obsession with asylums being like these dark horrifying spaces almost glorified in the stigma that they've had attached to them and i think that kind of in part comes down to almost an interest and intrigue in the unknown and with the other being either something to fear or idolise, or in the case of the asylum, occasionally both. And there's a case to be had for the argument that uh, as humans, we're obsessed with things like the murder documentaries and horror films because we have the desire to kind of understand what's going on in people's heads. So we watch things like um, serial killers on crime documentaries and we just want to know why, what, what's the motivation, what's the thought in the head, and we become kind of obsessed with that idea. And I think also the reputation that these sites had and the stories that came out of them catches our imaginations, but not necessarily in a good way. And we see this these asylums vilified a lot in media. You mentioned um, <clears throat> things like Shutter Island, which is a her, like horrific watch when you watching it with a historical thing in mind and you've got things like one flew over the cookies nest and even things like supernatural well like mm. those kind of supernatural like mild horror programs where they kind of bring it in as like a almost like a cheap trope in a way and what they all have in common is kind of the this depiction of awful conditions maltreatment and medical experimentation as well and in this there's kind of another argument that as humans we kind of like to oversimplify so we like to see things in a very kind of binary way. So we're very much in, in if there's things that we don't have a lot of knowledge on, and well, it's not just I'm not just saying like, oh, public stuff. So it's me as well. Everyone, everyone does it. If you don't know much about something, you're quite likely to fall back into a kind of binary perspective on it. And in that way, kind of asylums were bad. Like asylum, bad. Full stop. And this is much more pronounced then when you come to the fiction and this kind of obsession with 
uh, the other and the unreal and the different because we kind of like fantasize almost about it in that way and use it for like things like Halloween and how we like we watch horror films to be scared we kind of the idea of the asylum is in that kind of the same way we like the yeah the way in which we think about it if you know what I mean Joshua that was so enlightening thank you so much for joining us Um, and we should get you back on again to do a bit more asylum work so thank you so much definitely thank you for having me I had a really good time thank you very much Thank you for, for having me as well, Alina, and letting me take over and be perhaps a little too enthusiastic. It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Never apologise for enthusiasm. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.